Hello and welcome to this second podcast from the University of Bath Centre for the Analysis of Social Policy. Today I'm joined by Dr Rana Jawad from the Centre, whose work focuses on social policy and welfare systems in the Middle East and North Africa region. I started by asking Rana to summarise her area of research and talk about what are the specific social policy issues that people in the UK might not have thought about. I'll start by saying that the MENA region is Middle East and North Africa region. So generally, we are thinking about countries that are along the North African coast, so would include Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, and then along the southern Mediterranean. Um, I tend to focus primarily on the Arab-speaking countries, so Lebanon, Syria, Jordan. Um, And of course, there are many different definitions of what the MENA region comprises, but I go with what international donor agencies traditionally focus on. And when I say social policy, what I mean in in sort of very basic terms is how do societies in this region share resources? And when we talk about the sharing of resources, we mean about access to public services, so access to health services, access to education. And of course, there are life opportunities that are related to that. Um, So how do people share resources? How How do they access resources? And of course, that would also include accessing jobs and employment opportunities. And I look quite broadly at the systems, in large part because research has not been done in this area. So in a way, I'm kind of um, helping to establish this field and helping to show to map it and to show how the institutions and systems fit together. What do, what do state services do? What's the role of the state? What's the role of civil society or the third sector and how they fit together? So how are resources distributed? Um, How are people's needs met? Yeah, so very often an important category of the population would be people living in poverty or people living in extreme poverty. Who looks after them? How do they access important resources in society? And so really we're dealing with some important social problems, yeah, some of which we're already hearing about um, in the news more recently with the mobilizations. And of course, then we're, we're asking at a more abstract level, big questions around citizenship, around human rights, social rights, and, and you know big questions around the role of the state and society in ensuring people's needs are met. What are the specific social policy issues affecting that part of the world that people here in the UK might not have thought about or be aware of? Okay, so... Um, the a big area is looking at um employment opportunities and just the ability to pay for the basic necessities in life so this is a region which is not poor most countries in this region are either what we would call middle income countries or low to middle income countries especially the arab countries and in fact Um, In 2009, the United Nations Arab Human Development Report described Arab countries in particular as being richer than they are developed. Yeah. So if we think about these countries not being necessarily very poor, a big area is is employment and the fact that there has been some economic growth over the last few decades, but not enough jobs have been created. So there is a very large informal sector uh, of workers in this region which means that if they were to lose their income, uh, they would not, not necessarily have any savings. They would not necessarily have the social insurance in place to be able to access the necessary health or education services that they might need to pay for. Yeah. So if you think about the UK context, 
Typically, if somebody loses their job, they'll be able to fall back, in theory, on some kind of support service. And certainly there is a public health system and a public education system. So these countries vary in terms of the job security that they will have. And that means that there is a knock-on effect on access to other services. So the, the there are public schools uh, there are public hospitals, but very often the quality of these schools might not necessarily be very good and accessing them might not necessarily uh, be possible. And the same goes for health services, um, the quality of those services. And often there might be a fee to pay. Yeah? So there has to be um, uh, something paid so that people can access these services. So we're talking about basic issues of survival. And this is for the almost the mainstream population yeah so a lot of people have this precarious job situation um, and of course then we talk about the categories of the poor or the marginalized um, and these have remained constant for the last few decades um, in the MENA region uh, the region doesn't have the highest levels of poverty in the world um, but it certainly ha it's about the middle so it's probably a little bit above sub-saharan Africa but certainly it now has, according to some new research, uh, it's classed as the region with the highest income inequalities in the world. Yeah, so we know traditionally that Brazil and South Africa are sort of at the top in terms of income inequalities. But a lot of um, Middle Eastern countries are reaching those categories as well. And that, again, has knock-on effects for access to opportunities, uh, for economic and social participation more widely. Um, some groups are perhaps more affected than others. So women might be at a greater disadvantage. And certainly they constitute the largest proportion of people who are unemployed um, in the MENA region. Um, there are, of course, religious or ethnic uh, discriminations that happen in this region as well. Um, and certain communities might be excluded from particular uh, resources or access to particular opportunities. So tell us a bit about how you actually do this research. I mean, are you, are you out in the MENA region speaking to people? Is it qualitative research or quantitative? What's the what's the mix? Yeah, so my, my interest is very much uh, ideas and, and understanding people's subjective point of view, particularly because, as I said at the beginning, this is a region that we we know very little about. Yeah, as we all know, it's it, we, we hear a lot about the Middle East because of the geopolitics and the Islamic terrorism and it's and the nuclear uh, deal issues so it's very much a, a one-sided understanding that we in the West get so I think it's especially important to do qualitative research because then you get down to the level of, of the, the population and the people living and you get to understand their perspectives of how they view the issues that they face so I think on the one hand that's kind of the research that I've done uh, with civil society organizations um, but equally because I'm very interested in policy making um, and, and, and I think and 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 my interest in policy making is because policy is a space for change yeah we, we mustn't think about policy just as that's the policy what did it achieve what was it what was its impact we have to think about policy as an arena of social action where the state and the citizens interact or don't interact yeah so when we talk about political repression in this region, we have to think about the policymaking process as a space where that can make repression worse, yeah? If the citizen's voice isn't heard in the decisions that are made about where investment happens and, and how resources are distributed. And that, again, lends itself well 
to qualitative research. And how does that stand currently in terms of the citizen's voice being heard in policymaking in the MENA region? So it really varies. You have extreme examples of completely chaotic countries like the Lebanon, where um, you know the people are, are swearing at politicians on social media and joking about them, and there are programs on television about political corruption and naming and shaming politicians, and it's quite uh, very sad, but can be quite farcical. But it's 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 a completely open arena of free speech. But then, of course, as you may be aware, currently in Lebanon, there's you know big struggle. You know there has been a revolution going on for about 90 days now, um, and in that sense, there's a lot of openness. But but the inaction of policymakers, and and of course, I won't go into the details now. Um, and a government um, has now been um, established, so we kind of have to wait and see what happens. But then there are other countries. So if you look, for example, at the case of Egypt. Over the last few years, for various reasons, the Egyptian, primarily for security reasons, the Egyptian context has become a lot more cautious um, about civil civic associations and civil society associations and, and criticisms of the government, for example, um, and and the laws have changed as well to make it, you know, to monitor more who is able to establish a civil society organization and speak out against. Um, um, the government, if you like. So there is a range of experiences, but I would say overall, um, there is a sense of frustration that even if people were to complain, no one will listen to them. And I think this is why, uh, obviously, we see so much mobilization out on the streets, you know, that the, the, this is perhaps the best way to catch attention in a very desperate situation. Um, but this doesn't mean that there aren't activists out there. There's a lot of um, uh, very um, um, ambitious and hardworking people in academia and civil society, in the press, in government as well. And, and it's perhaps just uh, coordinating their efforts or I'm not sure what the breakthrough would be. So it's not to say that there aren't any activists out there. There are. But it just seems perhaps the d dynamics of what happens in this region just seem to get, you know, to make things quite complex. Just talk to us a bit about the role of, well, the role and the importance of religion within the region. Yeah, oh, yeah right. So, uh, of course, I mean, religion is a very important cultural, historical um, uh, actor. I mean, religion is not an actor, but a driver, if you like, of the values and the identity of the region. Um, but I think it's important to see it uh, in a proportionate way. Um, there's also been a very strong historic history of secularism in in the Arab countries. Yeah, very strong socialist and and, and anti-religious or non-religious um, orientations across the region. So Egypt, um, Turkey, if you class Turkey as a as a MENA country, a lot of the North African countries, so Algeria, Syria before, a lot of these countries have very Iraq have very strong traditions of secularism and sort of a republic um, approach to policy making. Um, Islam has been the most prominent force and in a way has been a fallback position for protest. And there's a lot that's been written about this. And it is because Islam holds sway, you know, just like in the UK, the Church of England will come out every so often and complain about a policy or they will oversee a public inquiry of some sort. So 
Islam, the Islam, Islamic establishment has moral and political authority or moral and social authority in this region. But of course, because of the, the political dynamics, on the one hand, um, and historically for, for various reasons, it will come and it will clash against the state where it perceives that it is being sidelined or that the state is serving other interests. And, and there's a long history for that of, of Islamic political mobilization against sort of the modern state in the Arab world. Um, but equally, religious groups will be politicized by the state. Yeah. So in various countries in this region, um, the the state will control or will monitor what the the sort of the, the mainstream official headlines that the uh, that Islamic representatives um, will uh, will share with the rest of the population and there will often be a sort of a lead a religious authority in the country so it's a so that's so it's actually quite a mixed and quite a complex relationship and you've got but on both sides you know you'll have religious groups with the government and for the government or against um, the government and of course at the local level, um, and it's not very different from what we have in the UK. Yeah, I mean, if you think of food banks in the UK, that's led by the church sector. So um, in the in this region as well, Islamic groups as other groups. Yeah, so there are Christian organizations, there are Jewish organizations, there are Zoroastrian. There's all kinds of religions in this region, and there is a lot of charitable, um, non-state activity that you know that these organizations are involved in. But of course, we hear most about the Islamic because they're the most contentious and they're the most populous. Back in 2014, you wrote a piece titled Bad Social Policy, Not Ideologies to Blame for the Arab World's Downward Spiral for the conversation. So I guess two parts to that question. What exactly do you mean by that? And now nearly six years on, has that issue got any better or worse? Um, so what I meant by that was to say that there are basic public policies that any government should implement that are supposed to support social cohesion in a society and they're supposed to keep that society together and to, they're supposed to keep the peace. And you do that by um, you know, ensuring a decent standard of living for your population, um, allowing some key freedoms, if not basic freedoms, um, and, and so in that sense, it's very easy to interpret what is the breakdown of the societies as we are seeing them now because of that breakdown in the policymaking process and the capacity of these governments to deliver services equitably. Yeah. So a lot of populations, um, Lebanon, um, um, Tunisia, other countries in this region will criticize their governments for misuse of public resources. Yeah. So that's a classic social policy question yeah the government is investing in relevant sectors to develop the capacities of its population to develop their skills um, to support the creation of jobs um, one important criticism of the um, industrial policies in this region is that they've not necessarily been in the sectors that are intensive in terms of uh, increasing gdp or in terms of increasing jobs, yeah? Um, and yet there are business elites that benefit very much from the international political economy, um, uh, even though, you know, and, the, and of course there is a sort of a, an unfortunate alliance between the political and business elites, yeah? So people in power will very often own the big industries, so the big tech industries, the big factories, yeah? So, so there's a lot of um, law and regulation issues um, that need to be looked at. And I think in that sense, it's, it's not that I'm de-emphasizing the geopolitics, 
um, and and that has that does have a part to play. But what I'm saying is is that we need to look at this the problem of social disintegration in this region in a, as in the way that it should be looked at, which is a, is a much more complex mix. And because these are reinforcing, mutually reinforcing issues. Yeah. So the people in power will exclude the others. And then, of course, you've got this situation of conflict. I think perhaps what muddies the waters uh, is that we mustn't forget that there is foreign policy um um, involvement in the MENA region. So we mustn't forget that some key countries, yeah, Iraq, Libya, have experienced military intervention from the West. And I think that's where I was trying to draw attention to this question of, of how do we understand security in this region? And we need to think in a much more complex manner um, at a very basic crude level. Um, if you think about, you know, and we hear a lot about this, that, you know, people who might be recruited to some of the Islamic movements um, within the Middle East, yeah, so in Iraq or, or Syria or Lebanon or elsewhere, um, it is the case, not all of them, but it is the case that some of them might not necessarily uh, be already integrated within their societies. They might not already have access to jobs and, and, and secure employment opportunities. Yeah. So I think that there are mutually reinforcing factors here. Um, and and without sort of dipping too much into foreign policy, I think that there is a, a greater role for international development. And, and maybe that's happening more now with some of the reforms that are happening for, for the social protection systems, because that has become a priority in the uh, in the Sustainable Development Goals uh, 2030 agenda. There needs to be a shift in attention to think about security more broadly um, and to think about conflict more broadly. So conflict isn't just about military intervention, but actually we need to think about these social inequalities and income inequalities and how international development can support that as well as a, as i think as a as a counterforce or a supporting force to the to the foreign policy considerations and so a complex question but in terms of the the past 6 years so you wrote that piece back in 2014 you know the kind of the development since is, is it really a mixed picture across the region in terms of what's happening yeah. um i mean i think well i mean looking across the region there's social discontent everywhere now, um, and what I mean everywhere is the country that I work in. So across um, North Africa, probably barring Morocco, um, perhaps, and but I, but I think all countries in North Africa have witnessed some kind of social mobilization in the last six, six years. Some governments have been able to um, repress that more successfully than others. Yeah. So uh, but other countries have not been able to repress that. So, you know, Lebanon is a prime example. Um, Jordan is kind of in between. Um, Egypt is trying to. Um, and then we have other countries that, that have descended into chaos. Yeah. So Yemen, Libya, Iraq, uh, Syria is trying to sort of maintain the presence. So we really have a breakdown of political and, and sort of social systems um, that has gotten worse. I would say it's it's such a fascinating. Area. How exactly did you get into this, Ron? How how did you come across across this area of research expertise, and what's your own backstory? Um, so uh, I've I've kind of always had, probably just through family origins, as you might guess, I've kind of known about the Middle East uh, region and been interested in it, and I've sort of have a background in humanities, believe it or not. So I actually studied modern languages, but I think I became increasingly interested in international development issues 
um, and particularly social policy and, and social justice issues. And I think that's probably just my own personal interest. Uh, there is no one else in my family working on this topic and I constantly have to explain to them what I do. Um, so I think it was just an interest in, in social justice and social welfare issues and, and knowing actually and kind of being just kind of thinking about well there's a lot more there's a lot more happening there you know from what I had seen and I hadn't grown up there but obviously I'd visited uh, Lebanon in particular which is where my family is from originally and sort of just being you know finding it quite strange that actually life goes on and mm. there's a lot happening you know and not just what we hear um, and actually from we the scratch news. below the surface yeah, the, the extra issues you absolutely. find absolutely so so and it so um so I think, uh, yeah, so I was able, I did my master's in international development and I was slowly working my way towards social policy. And then I, I did my PhD in social policy and Lebanon was my case study. And I've been, you know, from the very start of my career, you know, very deeply located in the UK social policy community. So everybody knows me as, you know, the odd one out who does research on the Middle East. But I'm very much in the UK, you know, British social policy traditions. And I found that very rewarding because it's um, it's a very um, well-developed and inspiring field to work in. And it gives me the analytical tools to think about um, a, diff a region that, you know, not many other researchers have thought about. But actually, a lot of people are waking up to that now because of, you know, the, the overarching um, agenda in the region. Um, and of course, this, the, a part of that, I've had a longstanding interest in religious welfare organizations. And I've worked both on the Middle East and the UK in that regard. And I think that's always sort of in the background and it helps me. Um, delve a bit more deeply into questions of sort of the norms around social justice and social welfare and how societies organize that way. Um, yeah, and that's where I'm in so far. <laughs> and so currently you're on sabbatical. Just tell us a bit about you know what, what you're up to now and what you're working on. Uh, so the sabbatical will help me continue with my publications. So there is a, a string of publications um, uh, the, uh, quite varied actually so there is a, a collaboration on a special issue with some other colleagues uh, overseas which is around uh, religion social and social policy and we'll be writing something around populism in particular and bringing in um, sort of revisiting the literature around um, Islam and populism actually so that interest um, remains uh, and of course the work around the analysis of social policy and how we understand it how we categorize it in in the MENA region continues um, I have a particular interest at the moment in social cash transfers so I'll quite likely be looking at uh, a handful of countries um, so, I, so that I don't keep talking broadly about this region because it is quite varied um, and probably looking at some specific case studies of Egypt um, and Jordan potentially Morocco so thinking about um, not social cash transfers you know they're a new thing but actually you know what do they tell us in the long run potentially about how social policy is organized in this region and I've got various ongoing projects that will keep you busy and some new funding I understand as well yes so we have been very fortunate indeed and uh Special thanks to the ESRC and AHRC in this instance. So we have been um, awarded a GCRF AHRC Networks Plus um, four-year 
project. Um, uh, so this is one of the, this was the Networks Plus funding scheme, and we've been working on that since March 2019. So um, it's a very exciting uh, prospect now. Um, and and I should say that this uh, sort of develops the work around the MENA social policy network um, that I um, began to set up in 2012 and has sort of got a life of its own now. So we are uh, a big group of uh, Bath-based academics, both in SPS and in Polis, and also um, academics from various um, Arab universities in Egypt and, and Lebanon and Morocco. Uh, but also we've got uh, policy practitioners and, and partners within this network. And um, there'll be three main areas that we work in. So uh, it will be very much about developing this network of partners and, and maintaining our relations and scoping the field. Um, but also we will be commissioning research. So um, hopefully within six months time or a year's time, we'll be able to send out a call for grants. Um, and then of course, we need to think about the legacy uh, of this network. And, and I should say the focus of the network will be around conflict prevention and how social policy can support research and policy making in relation to conflict prevention. So I think a lot of people will be interested seeing as it's a, a very conflict prone region um, and it's a very exciting time. So hopefully we'll be setting up um, that project soon. Fantastic. Well, really good luck with that. Thank and you. thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Ryan Jouad. Thank you very much, Andy.